Welcome to episode three of Real Gone. In this episode, we're going to move beyond jazz into discussing some of the other experimental music and art that was being pioneered in early 1970s New York, specifically in the downtown artists' lofts and experimental performance venues around the area south of Houston Street, known as Soho. One particular venue we'll discuss, known as The Kitchen, had special importance for the city's exponents of new electronic music and the presentation of groundbreaking mixed-media art. Lamont Young was born in 1935 and raised in the rural Mormon village of Bern, Idaho. When he moved to Los Angeles in the 1950s, his preoccupation was playing alto saxophone with radical jazz musicians like Don Cherry and Ornette Coleman. Even at this stage, Young had a fascination with the technique of sustain in music to emphasize its modal drone aspects, something he would decide to prioritize ahead of melodic progression. Young describes this fascination with drone as running back to his early experiences in the wide open spaces of the Idaho Plains, the sound of crickets and the wind in outdoor canyons, and the electronic hum of electrical transformers and telephone poles. Young studied at Berkeley in California in the late 1950s, but moved from the West Coast to New York in 1960. He became a member of the Fluxus Art movement, centered around Lithuanian-American artist George Machunas, who we'll discuss in more detail in our next episode in the context of the artist's housing cooperatives he created in Soho with his Flux House cooperatives. The Fluxus art movement included confrontational visual artists, writers, filmmakers and performance artists, Yoko Ono being one of its key figures. Young would also score the soundtrack for a number of Andy Warhol's static films. Labelled as an anti-art movement, the Fluxus artists sought to purge the world of dead art and, in their words, to promote living art to be grasped by all peoples, not only critics, dilettantes and professionals. Audience members would be actively involved in their performance, no longer distant and removed. A divisive personality, Young eventually broke from Fluxus, ironically citing an absence of conventional technical ability and the lack of seriousness with which they attributed to their craft as some of his reasons for doing so. His work with the Dream Syndicate would be of a more visceral and intense nature. The Theatre of Eternal Music was led by Lamont Young on saxophone and vocals and his wife, Marianne Zazila, an artist who worked on light and sound installations. The other primary members were violinist Tony Conrad and a pre-Velvet Underground John Keel on viola. Experimental composers Terry Riley and John Hassel were part-time participants. The group's self-described dream music, influenced by Eastern Raga skills and classical Indian music, most notably the hypnotic drone of Hindustani artist Ali Akbar Khan, explored sustained drone and pure harmonic intervals, employing obliterating amplification in lengthy all-night performances. They mined spiritualism from repetition. Many of the group's performances and marathon-length hash-infused rehearsals took place in Young and Zazila's loft at 275 Church Street in Tribeca, the triangle below Canal Street. The Theatre of Eternal Music's sustained drone and extreme amplification influenced John Keel's subsequent contribution to the Velvet Underground in his use of both discordance and feedback. The collective disbanded in acrimony over arguments about compositional credit, with Young claiming sole authorship of the music created by the group, despite its aesthetic of extreme minimalism and melodic stasis. 
However, Young and Cecilia continued their drone experimentation. Their immersive dream house, light and sound installations where music was produced continuously by sine wave generators, sometimes with human accompaniment, ran from September 1966 to 1970 uninterrupted and has continued intermittently to the present day. The drone maintained 24 hours a day, open to the public in the daytime. Attendees at the original installations, often fueled by LSD, hashish and opium, spent up to seven hours a night in Young's loft, an experience that would just not have been possible in traditional gallery space. The physical effect of the drones and magenta light installation applied at Dreamhouse is to create what writer Harry Sword describes in his book Monolithic Undertow as a zone of beatific discombobulation, a stern, eternal oracle buzz. Despite releasing very little official recordings, the influence of Lamont Young and Marion Cecilia is notable in the development of Bran Eno's ambient music, the pulverising drone metal of Dylan Carson's Earth and Sun, all of whom cite Young as an influence, Eno calling Young the daddy of us all. This is a Lamont Young piece from 1960 called Composition No. 7, consisting of one piano note sustained throughout the piece. Formal music experimentation found other champions in playwright Robert Wilson and New York resident Philip Glass, who collaborated on the ambitious modern opera Einstein on the Beach in the early 1970s. Wilson's own play, The Life and Times of Joseph Stalin, attended by Glass, had run from 7pm to 7am at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in November 1973. This long-form approach was attractive to Glass, who by that point had begun composing idiosyncratic pieces of his own that stretched to well over four hours. Glass and Wilson were headhunted by French Minister of Culture, Michel Guy, to stage the production of Einstein at the Avignon Festival in 1976. While head of the Festival d'Automne in Paris, Michel Guy had attended a musical rehearsal of the Philip Glass Ensemble in 1973 at the downtown New York loft of one of its members, saxophonist and painter Dickie Landry. Like Glass and many other avant-garde artists, Landry had gained recognition playing in the downtown art galleries of Soho during the 1960s, including the prominent Leo Castelli Gallery at 420 West Broadway. Castelli had famously sold Andy Warhol's Campbell soup cans and hosted the first exhibition of Roy Lichtenstein's comic book paintings in 1962. Glass was a migrant from Baltimore, who lived in a converted loft on Fulton Street in 1959 when he first moved to the city to study at the prestigious Juilliard School of Music. He had moved to Paris in 1964 for an intensive musical education with the expert female classical professor Nadia Boulanger. He adopted yoga, vegetarianism and Buddhism at a relatively young age and travelled to India to expand his spiritual understanding of the world. When he returned to New York in 1967 after working with Ravi Shankar in Paris, he reconnected with his old Juilliard classmate Steve Reich. He was ready to break new ground and create a new form of modern American music. Experimenting in heavily rhythmic and hypnotic music, Glass worked on the four-hour opus Music in Twelve Parts between 1971 and 1974 and performed concerts in his loft at 10 Elizabeth Street off Baker Street in Greenwich Village near the city's Flower District. This was not too far from the jazz loft of Eugene Smith, 
which, as we mentioned in earlier episodes, was secretly frequented by the hyperactive jazz artists of the city, who, like Glass, a classically trained musician, were attempting to break free from the conventional perception and presentation of their music. There was a requirement to go further than anyone had ever been, and New York was the alien landscape that allowed these artists to demark their creative territory. Glass had spent some time with his ensemble performing incomplete versions of his work at Jonas Mika's Cinematheque in Soho. He also availed of the burgeoning art gallery and musical theatre scene in Soho during the late 60s, where he played in his own ambitious but sincere words high-concept music that was aligned with high-concept theatre, art, dance and painting. It seemed to us that, for the first time, a music world that was equivalent to the world of painting, theatre and art began to emerge. If that sounds too pretentious, it's worth pointing out that Glass spent years during his early New York musicianship, operating a moving van business, working as a plumber, and more time, even after his creative successes, as a New York taxi driver to make ends meet. In his moving business, named Chelsea Light Moving, he used a truck borrowed from his friend Richard Sierra, the revered American grand-scale steel sculptor, whose works are on show in 2023 in the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao and various celebrated arts venues across the world. Influenced by Joseph Papp's public theatre, Glass would salvage discarded theatre seats and rugs he found abandoned in downtown streets to adapt his loft at Elizabeth Street into a performance space. Reading Glass's memoir, Words Without Music, one is impressed by the level of professional dedication, but also the sense of adventure Glass brings to his many spiritual quests and lauded musical endeavours. Glass was well into his 40s before any level of commercial success presented itself, but there was always a relentless dedication to and love for music that shines through, and an unceasing willingness to work in service to his creativity. After decades of musical education and time spent in and away from the city, he described music in 12 parts, his crystallisation as an artist of unique importance, as music that came right out of the guts of New York City. Glass speaks have been influenced by the high-volume presentation of bands like Jefferson Airplane and Frank Zappa, who he watched perform at the Fillmore East in New York in the late 60s. He also credits the raw power of bebop music, the life force in the music of John Coltrane, Bud Powell and Lenny Tristano, even though stylistically jazz did not seem outwardly to be an important influence on his early music. Philip Glass wasn't exactly Lou Reed in terms of musical personality, but it's difficult to think of his music being created anywhere else than New York City. There is absolute beauty in his early music, but never comfort or resolution, and this is not easy listening. There are always too many moving pieces and a kind of anxious hyperactivity, as if there's some focused effort that the prolonged performance of the music will somehow resolve the artist's insecurities or keep the impossibility of perfect realisation at a distance. There is a trance-like quality in his music that presupposes techno, as if Glass was trying to compose music that would manifest itself culturally as a form 30 years ahead of its time, with any immediate comparator to indicate if he was moving in the right direction, either artistically or commercially. The sound system utilised by Glass for the first performance of Music in 12 Parts at Town Hall in New York was built by Kurt Mancasi, who had designed audio systems for Lamont Young, and would be a regular player in the Philip Glass Ensemble for decades to come. This approach was novel and significant in that it sought to apply the technology of rock music to modern classical music to immerse audience members in a more visceral concert experience than had previously been on offer. Glass's music was not experimentalism for the sake of it, and there was a sincere effort being made to have this music reach a wider audience. 
of Einstein on the beach at the Avignon Festival led to the Metropolitan Opera in New York booking Glass and Wilson to stage a production of the opera in November 1976. The production was a critical success, but not uncommon for the opera world, these concerts in the previous tour of Europe had made significant losses and plunged Glass and Wilson into $100,000 of debt. Nonetheless, Einstein had made their reputation and both would go on to lasting critical and commercial successes and immense cultural importance. Glass is celebrated as one of America's greatest composers, composing symphonies, operas, concertos and a broad range of film soundtracks, including The Truman Show, Koyana Skatsi and Errol Morris's documentaries, which include The Thin Blue Line. Robert Wilson is recognised as one of the most innovative pioneers of experimental theatre, collaborating with Tom Waits on the plays The Black Rider, Alice and Wojciech, and a multitude of other revered artists. Steve Reich was a groundbreaking minimalist composer living in New York, whose work had heavily influenced his friend Philip Glass and others. He created outstanding emotive pieces in the mid-60s, utilising sampling, vocal manipulation and repetition that would dovetail with the aesthetics of disco remix culture in the mid-70s and innovations by sonic explorers like Walter Gibbons and Arthur Russell. Observing the tape loops of slightly differing lengths, containing the same idea when slowly out of phase and very gradually back into phase when they were repeated incessantly, Wright conceived of phase shifting in the mid-60s, an incredible example of this approach being applied in It's Gonna Rain from 1965. This track features a Pentecostal preacher delivering a passionate sermon about Noah's Ark in San Francisco's Union Square. Two recorded loops of the preacher's voice start off in unison before one of the loops creeps slowly ahead. The shift in the rhythms creates an interlocking effect that Reich then manipulates, accelerating and decelerating, isolating patterns and phrases in the vocals hidden within the original phase. The effect is uncomfortable but hypnotic, creating the impression that under any seemingly random sequence of words lies hidden polyrhythms and infinite music. American steel sculptor Richard Sierra, a friend of Steve Reich's also, gave the opening speech at a 2005 ceremony where Reich was being awarded the Edward McDowell Medal for his contribution to American arts and culture. When describing Reich's use of spoken word in the piece It's Gonna Rain, Sierra spoke of how the result is music, not language. Language is being pushed to the breaking point where the meaning of words has been obliterated so as to allow its potential for music to emerge. In 1966, Reich's piece Come Out was based on another vocal sample, this time inspired by the case of the Harlem Six, six young African-American men who in 1964 were arrested in Harlem's 32nd district after a riot and accused of murder. One of the men, 18-year-old Daniel Ham, whose case was later overturned, was interviewed at the nearby Friendship Baptist Church a few days after the initial incident that led to his arrest. A short section of the interview forms the basis of Reich's piece. I had to, like, open the bruise up and let some of the bruised blood come out to show them. I had to, 
like open the bruise up and let some of the bruised blood come out to show them. On 20th of April 1964, Ham had intervened when local police accosted a group of children who, seeing a capsized fruit cart outside a local store, began throwing grapefruits around for fun. As a result, Ham and his friend Wallace Baker were beaten by police through the night, but had been refused medical attention as their wounds were not visibly bleeding. At the beginning of the piece, Ham describes being beaten and trying to prove that he had been brutalised. As the piece progresses, the phases of the extract shift and move against each other into an unsettling pattern that reflects the tone of the subject matter. On April 30th, 1964, ten days after his beating by police, the stabbing of Margie Sugar at her used clothing store in Harlem brought the police back to Ham's door. He was arrested with five other men and charged with murder, despite a lack of evidence to justifiably convict them. Civil rights activist Truman Nelson, as well as several other famous artists, including writer James Baldwin, actor Ozzie Davis, poets Amiri Baraka and Allen Ginsberg, philosopher Bertrand Russell, together with John Lennon and Yoko Ono, campaigned on behalf of the Harlem Six. Nelson recorded interviews with the boys, as well as their mothers, and put them together into a book entitled The Torture of Mothers, in order to raise awareness about their case. While attempting to organise a benefit concert in 1966 to pay for their legal fees, Nelson was made aware of Steve Reich's piece, It's Gonna Rain. He approached Reich with a request to edit tape extracts of his interviews with the imprisoned Harlem Six into a musical piece for the benefit concert to be held at Town Hall in New York that April. The concert was successful in raising funds to launch appeals against the convictions in 1968, but retrials and hung juries led to this process dragging on until 1973. The Harlem Six pleaded reduced charges of manslaughter in exchange for suspended sentences. Daniel Ham was released from prison the following year, having been detained for nine years since Margie Sugar's murder. Reich first performed his piece Come Out in the Park Place Gallery in Soho, one month after the Town Hall concert. Its release in 1967 on a compilation of experimental music by CBS Odyssey and the related glowing reviews from Time magazine and New York magazine properly announced Reich's arrival as a composer of importance. Reich would revisit documentary material throughout his career, notably in the 1988 piece Different Trains, which features vocal samples of Holocaust survivors describing their personal journeys on the trains to Auschwitz and 2011's WTC 911 which incorporates voice recordings relating to the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center. Reich's compositional scope had developed into efforts in writing for larger ensembles, culminating in his masterpiece, Music for 18 Musicians, which he began writing in 1974, recorded in 1976, and finally saw released in 1978. As with Come Out, the world premiere of this piece was staged at Town Hall, New York City. His players rehearsed the work at his loft at 624 Broadway in Soho and premiered a prototype of the piece in a series of concerts held at the kitchen. A non-profit performance arts space operating out of a loft in Soho at the corner of Worcester and Broome Street between 1973 to 1986. Notable artists who made appearances at the kitchen in the 1970s include Laurie Anderson, Meredith Monk, Brian Eno, Arthur Russell, who worked as its musical director for a number of years, 
and later Glenn Branca and the No Wave roster, being Lydia Lunch, Mars, Swans and James Chance and the Contortions. The Beastie Boys would actually stage one of their early shows at the Kitchen in December 1983. Reich's influence would extend well beyond the world of minimalism into pop music, electronica and hip-hop. His emphasis on repetition and overlapping rhythms is the main reason Harper's Magazine deemed Reich's music a higher form of disco in a 1984 article. It's easy to see the influence of Reich and music for 18 musicians in particular in albums by electronic artists such as EFX Twin, E2E4 by Manuel Gotching and Where You Go I Go Too by Hans Peter Lindstrom. Listen to Blood on the Leaves from the Kanye West album Yeezus and see how the manipulation of the Billie Holiday vocal sample an extract from the culturally charged classic Strange Fruit echoes the style of Steve Reich's Come Out. While working on Low with Brian Eno, David Bowie attended the Berlin premiere of Music for 18 Musicians in 1976. The pulsing marimbas and vibraphones off Weeping Wall on Low are supposedly an homage to Reich's enduring masterpiece. Kitchen took its name from the venue's original home between 1971 and 1973 in the galley of the Mercer Arts Centre, located in the eight-storey Broadway Central Hotel at 673 Broadway and 240 Mercer Street. The formerly opulent hotel, the largest in the country at the time of construction, with 630 rooms, has stood for more than 100 years. Its marble fireplaces, crystal chandeliers, and high-end catering, making it a favourite of wealthy tycoons in its 1890s prime. The opulence of the neighbourhood declined at the turn of the century, when high society moved uptown. By the 1960s, the building was a dilapidated retreat for junkies and prostitutes, and had by 1970 become a welfare hotel, operated by its owners with city funding. Club promoter Art de Lugoff, who was instrumental in the establishment of the jazz venue The Village Gate in Greenwich Village, bought the first two floors of the building, by then known as the University Hotel, and renovated it for about $500,000 with funding from the jovial air conditioning tycoon and famed race car driver Seymour Kalbach. The aim was to create a downtown version of the Lincoln Centre, the prestigious performing arts centre situated on the Upper West Side. The main floor of the Broadway Hotel housed two larger theatres, the Mercer Hansbury Theatre and the Mercer Brecht. The second floor had four cabaret theatres, the O'Casey, the Oscar Wilde Room, the Shaw Arena and the Kitchen, then known as the Mercer Media Repertory Theatre, which staged video art, poetry and performance art. 35,000 square feet of air-conditioned performance space in total. There were also other bars and boutiques contained within, including the chic Blue Room Cabaret, which drew comparisons with the Maloco Bar and a Clockwork Orange. The Mercer Arts Centre was founded in December 1971, by actor-director Gene Frankel, in conjunction with the actor Vivica Linfors, video artists Steiner and Woody Vasulka, and actor Rip Torn, who starred in a production of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as part of the grand opening programme. Predating the opening of CBGB's by a few years, the Mercer was the incubator for punk rock in the early 1970s, 
with regular shows by the Magic Tramps, New York Dolls, Wayne County, Frank Zappa, Jonathan Richmond's Modern Lovers, and early shows by one of New York's greatest ever bands, Suicide, who had a residency in the Oscar Wilde room after winning the favour of Cy Kaback, who seemed taken by the nervous energy of Alan Vega and Martin Rev when they met at his office. As with the avant-garde musicians of the jazz lofts, these artists were outsiders that the popular mainstream was just not ready for, but who needed space to develop their own sound with a live audience. In June 1971, in the kitchen's original Mercer Street location, a stone's throw from Soho's northeastern tip, where it was named the Electronic Kitchen, founders and Czech emigres Steiner and Woody Vasulka sent out invitations for artists to make use of the new space that could seat up to 200 audience members and would operate seven days a week. The Vasulkas were mixed-media artists who arrived in New York in 1966. With funding from the New York State Council of the Arts, Woody Vasulka recorded rock events, jazz concerts, theatre and dance performance for a living. On New Year's Eve 1969, he recorded the famous concerts by Jimi Hendrix performing with the Band of Gypsies at the Fillmore East in New York City. The Vasulkas attended regular parties with like-minded artists at venues such as Global Village, Rain Dance, the People's Video Theatre, Andy Warhol's Factory, and Jonas Mekas Filmmaker Cinematheque on Worcester Street, a space for independent film that was a precursor to the more famous anthology film archives. The first significant event in the world of new media art, being cultivated by artists such as the Vasilkas, was the Nine Evenings event, created by Robert Rauschenberg and Billy Kluver in 1966 under the label EAT meaning Experiments in Art and Technology. Engineers from the Bell Telecommunications Research Laboratories in New Jersey had collaborated with Rauschenberg and other artists, including John Cage, on the event which was held at the 69th Regiment Armory, Lexington Avenue, New York. The artists and engineers developed performances and installations using cutting-edge technologies, including closed-circuit television, fiber optics and infrared television cameras, along with portable radio transmitters. Musician Steve Reich would contribute to EAT with the invention of a device he named the phase-shifting pulse gate. Many of the East Coast video collectives such as Raindance, Ant Farm, Radical Software, Guerrilla Television and Video Freaks saw video as a reproductive and distribution apparatus that would revolutionize American culture. Their view was that its democratizing effect empowered participants to short-circuit and decentralize the control of corporate or state mass media by way of traditional mainstream television and radio. Woody Vasulka saw the struggle for media, even if it is, for example, public television channels, as a struggle for power. Equipment such as the 1965 Sony Portapack camera and video recording system, weighing only £25 and priced at a relatively low $1,500, was seen as liberating for artists like Namjoon Pike, whose first use of the Portapack camera was reportedly to record images of the Pope's visit to New York from the back of a taxi, which he displayed that same evening at the Café Agogo in Greenwich Village. The ease with which the Portapack allowed users to sync sound and vision, and the portability of the equipment, was seized on by artists and video collectives such as Metropolis Video, many of whom worked at the Manhattan Cable Television's public access department. These young students and aspiring filmmakers used the Port-a-Pack to document the New York punk scene and record numerous concerts by Talking Heads, Blondie and the Heartbreakers at CBGB's from 1975 onwards. The Kitchen fostered a community aesthetic 
with performing artists often becoming involved in the management of the venue. Directors became known as cooks. Otherwise unavailable cutting-edge video technology was made accessible for use by attending artists. The initial run of the electronic kitchen coincided with the invention of video synthesizers. Devices which controlled the electron beam of a cathode ray through a vector deflection circuit, enabling programmers to rotate and manipulate images in 3D. This was the beginning of computer graphics, and a number of the early pioneers were regular attendees at the kitchen. Bill Etra, co-creator of the Root Etra video synthesizer, an analog manipulation device used for image processing and real-time animation, showed frequently at the kitchen during the Vasulka's tenure. Walter Wright, who worked at Computer Image Corporation as a video animator, using New York's only available video synthesizer, would develop his own video projects on Sundays when the CIC office was closed. After putting together a visual piece to accompany Yoko Ono's paper shoes, which was shown at the kitchen, he was invited to become an associate. Eric Siegel, another virtuoso inventor, teamed up with the Vasilkas under the brand Perception to apply for state funding. Through connections made via Siegel, the Electronic Arts Intermix, an emergent not-for-profit organization started by gallerist Howard Wise, became the kitchen's primary financial sponsor until it eventually became incorporated as Haleakala Incorporated, the corporate entity it has traded under ever since. New York's downtown experimental scene represented a renegade alternative to the uptown classical establishment. When the Kitchen's music series was launched under the management of Reese Chatham on 4th of October 1971, its inaugural concert was by Laurie Spiegel, performing harmonic rhythms on a Buchla modular synthesizer borrowed from the Bleecker Street studio operated by electronic composer Morton Subotnik, who had founded the San Francisco Tape Music Center in 1962, attended by early electronic explorers like Pauline Oliveros and Tony Martin. When introduced to the Buchla, Spiegel said that music went from black and white to colour. She revelled in electronic instrumentation and the manner in which instruments like the Buchla synthesizer allowed for instant processing and the immediate realisation of her compositional ideas. Only a few years later, in 1977, renowned astronomer Carl Sagan would select the music and other sound recordings to be placed on NASA's Voyager probes. Now billions of miles from Earth, the gold-plated 12-inch albums on board featured a selection of music, sounds and images on the off chance that some intelligent alien civilization encountering them would hear them and determine there was intelligent and artistic life on Earth. On the Sounds of the Earth section of the recording is an excerpt of Laurie Spiegel's electronic sonification of Johannes Kepler's 1619 astronomical work Harmony of the Worlds, an attempt to record in musical formula the motion of the planets through the solar system. Coincidentally, Carl Sagan was an old college friend of Philip Glass. Born in Chicago in 1945, Laurie Spiegel learned to play guitar, banjo and piano without any formal lessons. She studied music at Oxford University, England and Juilliard School of Music in New York. While experimenting with synthesizers in 1969, she envisioned the use of electronic equipment to replicate the patterns of folk music. Like German pioneers Kraftwerk, she was determined to uncover the emotional potential in electronic music and to utilise the technology to maximise the creative output of her artistic imagination. In 1973, courtesy of US telecommunications giant Bell, 
with the designation of resident visitor, Spiegel was granted extensive access to the company's New Jersey research labs and computers during out-of-office hours. Bell enjoyed a monopoly on telecommunications in the U.S. up until 1984, when it was broken up into smaller companies. Its research division was directed towards innovation in telecommunications technology, but also pure research into human perception, cognition and memory. Bell was a fertile site for creativity, with many researchers given free rein to explore new technologies without any overt pressure from the commercial wing of the company to develop products for the telecoms market. Digital audio technologies had been developed at Bell decades before consumers were buying CDs on mass scale. Utilising three rooms of computer equipment, Spiegel worked between 1974 and 1976 to create the music that would comprise her masterpiece, The Expanding Universe. Spiegel explained the album's title as applying to the expansion of our consciousness coming out of the 60s and also to the expansion of the musical universe, both aesthetically and technologically. The sophisticated computer technology Laurie Spiegel was given access to was not available to private individuals, only institutions such as governmental and military departments, universities and insurance companies. In her original liner notes for the album, Spiegel thanked John Duarte, Michael Chisowski and Max Matthews of Bell Labs, who had designed the Groove system, aka generating real-time operations on voltage-controlled equipment, by which the album functioned. Max Matthews was the director of departments involved in cognitive and perceptual research, investigating how the human memory is organised. Matthews had rendered the voice of the dying HAL 9000 computer system in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey as he's deprogrammed by astronaut Dave Bowman while singing the song Daisy Bell, Bicycle Built for Two, the first ever music performed by a computer, specifically the IBM 704 at Bell Labs. There is some poetry in the knowledge that Laurie Spiegel's music has been able to travel physically farther into space than even Stanley Kubrick's imagination. As with the Vasilka's view of emergent camera technology for filmmakers, Spiegel considered her work at Bell Labs to be representative of how the democratisation of music making could be enabled by electronic technology. She correctly foresaw that musicians would no longer be hindered by the physical and financial requirements of virtuosic musicianship and the traditional mechanics of record production. Laurie Spiegel cites the accessibility of synthesizers and instruments of electronic composition at the time as having been an effective means to bypass reliance on conductors orchestras and recording studios, the traditional means of musical production in a male-dominated industry. She posits this attribute as being one of the reasons for the abundance of female pioneers in early electronic experimental music. For an eloquent exploration of this particular theme, be sure to watch Lisa Rovner's brilliant 2020 documentary Sisters with Transistors, which features exhilarating footage of female electronic artists such as Susan Chiani, Pauline Oliveros, Eliane Radig, moving footage of Laurie Spiegel herself, who exudes a serene but charismatic aura when on screen, framed against the backdrop of excited birds at sunrise in New York City. Electronic music, as pioneered by artists like Laurie Spiegel, represented creative and economic liberation, and the opportunity for total freedom of expression, a common theme for the multitude of artists making music in New York at that time. There's a trace of the expanding universe in the music of acts from the Sheffield electronica label Warp, Boards of Canada in particular, the music captures the adrenaline rush of moving into the scientific, emotional and spiritual unknown, 
but was delivered by way of intricate technical patterns and beautiful melodies. venue for cutting-edge performance, televised images often becoming part of the musical performances by way of fruitful collaborations between musical and visual artists. Kitchen artists would begin linking their instruments to video synthesizers, frequently to startling effect. Reese Chatham and Laurie Spiegel would collaborate with Tony Conrad from the Theatre of Eternal Music at the Kitchen on 11th of March 1972, when they performed Ten Years in the Infinite Plain. Conrad had built the amplified long-string drone instruments, Spiegel played the bass pulse, and Chatham performed electric guitar. Conrad's droning violin fed into the loops of strobing black-and-white vertical lines, gradually interlaced to form new image configurations, the video footage being mixed live for playback in the visual monitors by Woody and Stein of Asulka themselves. The Kitchen's directors had already made the decision to move to their new Soho space at Worcester and Broom Street, but the physical collapse of the building housing the Mercer Arts Centre on 3rd of August 1973, killing four residents and injuring 12 people, made the move a necessity. The victims of the collapse sued the hotel owners, Matilda Edwards and Gertrude G. Latham, who in turn pursued the operators of the Arts Centre for $2 million, alleging that reckless alterations had been made. It transpired that, in February 1969, a major load-bearing wall in the basement had been removed without an official permit, this, combined with the vibrational activity of the adjacent BMT subway, is believed to have been the cause of the collapse. In 1980, Justice Edward J. Greenfield ruled that New York City was 30% liable for damages because the breach of regulations was missed by the building's department, but this ruling was overturned on appeal in 1983. The site was fully demolished and rebuilt, and today the location is used as the NYU dormitory for its law school students. One immediate effect of the Broadway Hotel collapse was that Mayor John Lindsay ordered all pre-1901 structures in the city to be re-evaluated. This was to put severe pressure on theatre and nightclub operators like David Mancuso, whose loft house party at 647 Broadway adjoined the building which housed the Mercer Arts Centre. The city's regulatory bodies went into overdrive with snap inspections and arbitrary fines, accelerating the gentrification of downtown Manhattan with property developers waiting in the wings to demolish and rebuild. Suicide and punk rock would eventually find a new home at the Bowery at CBGB's in 1974. The Broadway Hotel collapse marks time for the end of an era, after which experimental art and underground disco nightclubs would move out of the lofts and underground venues into more visible spaces like Le Jardin, Studio 54 and the kitchen's new home on Worcester and Broom Street, ultimately consolidating their position in the mainstream of American popular culture. The physical condition of the city would again impose itself on its residents as if it will. Gone. 
thanks for listening. In our next episode, we're going to take a detailed look into how artists, musicians, and business people operating in the creative arts collectively moved into the abandoned industrial lofts of Soho in the 1960s. These artists organized politically and created a new form of urban development in New York. In doing so, they managed to effectively spearhead opposition to the Lower Manhattan Expressway project, a long gestating infrastructure project that would have decimated Soho and much of the surrounding area. Their efforts helped preserve downtown New York for the explosion of progressive art and music that would be created there in the late 60s and early 1970s.